Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, civil rights leader Dr. Robert B. Haling died on December 20th. We'll hear from Dr. Haling in one of his last interviews. At times, I would apply for different things that it wasn't ordinary for, shall we say, a black to have the audacity to um, approach. We'll discuss historic Sanborn fire insurance maps. The Sanborn and fire insurance maps are really the only collection of maps in the United States that historians, demographers can use to understand the evolution of a single property or a single area. And talk about Ernest Hemingway's polydactyl cats in Key West. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the 1960s, Dr. Robert B. Haling was a leader of the civil rights movement in Florida. His former dentist's office in St. Augustine is now a museum. Among the items displayed there is the sign from the Monson Motor Lodge. In the summer of 1964, peaceful protesters attempting to integrate the pool there were threatened with dangerous chemicals. Images of the incident appeared in newspapers across the country as the Civil Rights Act was being debated in Congress. Dr. Haling died on December 20th at the age of 86. One of Haling's last public appearances was at the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium in May 2015, where he discussed his life. I grew up on the campus of Florida A&M College. It's now Florida A&M University. My dad was born in Grenada. My mother is out of New Orleans, called New Orleans Creole. My dad came to Tallahassee in 1925. My brother, my older brother, was born in uh, 28, and I was born in 29. I'm giving you that history to say that we are many, many generations Floridians, and it's the kind of thing that it never occurred to me that I would have to earn my citizenship in Florida to be able to do the normal things any average citizen would do. Haling grew up in a successful middle-class family, but at an early age he became aware of racial inequities in America. My grandmother on my mother's side came to live with us, and I was a teenager and she was in her 80s, and naturally she read her Bible quite a bit. And so to kind of tease my grandmother a bit, I would end up saying, and especially if she denied me something or reprimanded me for something and whatever, Grandmama, if black and white people can't get along here on earth, 
How are they going to get along in heaven? And my grandmother would scream out, Cleo, Cleo, come get this boy. God is going to strike him dead <laughs> for that kind of activity. So I've shared a little joke with you. <laughs> and I, I'm still living and what have you and so forth. But I still have that question. After graduating from Florida A&M University with a B.A. in biology, Haling volunteered to serve in the U.S. Air Force during the Korean War. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in 1952. At times, I would apply for different things that it wasn't ordinary for, shall we say, a black to have the audacity to um, approach. So I did have some rejection and then some questioning. Why are you asking for these privileges or those privileges when all the others of your complexion and so forth have not made a disturbance or anything. So if that makes me a troublemaker, I plead guilty. After completing his military service, Haling earned his doctoral degree studying dentistry at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. He was active in the civil rights movement there. One night, the windows of his dormitory imploded from the shock of a dynamite blast at the home of a teacher across the street. Having marched in a protest march in April of 1960, when my Jewish prudence attorney, attorney Z. Alexander Luby, had his home dynamited because he was the attorney for desegregating the Nashville public schools. And we marched on City Hall, and that's where I met such a civil rights luminaries as J.T. Johnson and C.T. Vivian and um, James Bevel, Diane Nash, and fellow by the name of Lafayette. And I had to fake going to uh, the dispensary for an illness to get an excuse to be absent from class <laughs> because the word had come down that we were not to be to participate. So those are to show you the kind of things that you do. In 1960, Haling moved to St. Augustine to start his dental practice, taking over the practice of the deceased Dr. Gordon. While many older African-American residents were afraid of repercussions from participating in civil rights activities, Haling was successful in recruiting younger people to the movement as advisor to the NAACP Youth Council and a local leader of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. At first, Haling didn't have much support from national leaders of the civil rights movement. Well, my problem went all the way up to Roy Wilkins, who was a CEO or director of the NAACP station in New York. And lo and behold, I had a sister who, my youngest sister was a teacher and an administrator in the New York school system. So I had a person who could make visits to Roy Wilkins's office on our behalf. And lo and behold, the word came down that the NAACP and other civil rights activists were not interested in St. Augustine. And I couldn't understand how a city named after St. Augustine and a North African saint could come up 
as prejudiced and as racist as St. Augustine finally emerged. By the same token, I was city jail dentist, county jail dentist, state prison farm dentist. L.O. Davis, the chain cigar smoking sheriff, had been in my chair as a patient. And many of the deputies who brought patients to me after they went back and found out that the patient was still alive and in good shape and whatever and all, whenever they came back again, they would say, Doc, I got a dental problem over here. Can you check this? And so we'd say, sit in the chair and let's see what we can do. So some of the same deputies that I encountered out at the Klan rally, not to mention one of my teenage patients were, and her mother were on the front row of the Klan rally to point me out that that's that troublemaking dentist and whatever, and he's a right-handed dentist, and this arm and this shoulder and everything else took the brunt of a lot of their licks and blows to make sure that I suffered and I have a finger that I cannot straighten out and all to this day because of the injuries that I received. A large cross was erected in a field near St. Augustine in September 1963. The cross was to be burned during a rally of the Ku Klux Klan, which had attracted national leaders of the organization. Haling and three of his friends tried to catch a glimpse of the rally. The Klan had been down um, in City Hall which was called the slave market. The area and now is called Constitutional de la Plaza now. But there's a red big bronze plaque and everything else and it's still labeled slave market and the history thereof. But they had announced this rally and they brought in a Klan leader from California by the name of Connie Lynch and People had come and passed the word to me, Dr. Halen, have you been out in US 1 and all and out in a big field and all? There's a great big cross and what have you. And that's where they're gonna have the Klan rally and they're gonna light this cross and so forth. And these Klan celebrities from all the area would be in attendance to that meeting. And we never thought that parking on the side of US-1 on the shoulder of the road, looking over into the field where the rally was being held, that we would encounter difficulty. But lo and behold, to our amazement, we looked up and here were two Klansmen in the front of the car with big guns and two Klansmen in the rear of the car with big guns. And my driver, James Hauser, thought that he knew a path out or whatever or something, and he gunned the car, and lo and behold, that side road, they had dug a ditch and everything across the road that cars could not traverse, so we had to put on brakes and everything else, and we were abducted, taken out of the cars and along with axe handles and baseball bats and all, all across our heads and everything else, and taken to the speaker's platform. And we were stacked on top of each other like cordwood. And the audience, I guess, because of the physical activity, had started dissipating and leaving the area. And we had one infiltrator 
Reverend Cheney, who was an Episcopal priest who wore a microphone and all, and he had taken down all of the messages and what have you from the performance of the speakers and the people involved. And Connie Lynch had gotten around to asking the audience if they had ever smelt the smell of the N-word burning, that so-and-so was coming back with an inflammatory. And as soon as he got back, they would be treated to the smell of ends burning. Lo and behold, Reverend Cheney left the Klan meeting and went down the road and got to a telephone and called Tallahassee for the highway patrol and other law enforcement people. And I think the word got through the audience and everything else that law enforcement was coming from out of St. Augustine. When word came that law enforcement authorities from outside the area were on their way to the rally, the crowd disbanded and Haling and his friends were released. Haling spent about two weeks in the hospital after being beaten, but continued his civil rights activities. In February 1964, shots were fired into Haling's home, narrowly missing his pregnant wife and killing the family dog. In response to the violence aimed at his family, Haling moved to Cocoa Beach. In the summer of 1964, national attention was focused on St. Augustine as the Civil Rights Act languished in Congress. Haling returned to the city to coordinate peaceful demonstrations with Martin Luther King Jr. My thought processes was to move my family, which I did immediately after the shooting up of my home, you know. But I and I hate to make it sound like you were thinking clearly because many of my cohorts in Nashville could not understand how Dr. Haling and Robert, and they called some even said Bob Haling, how in the devil did you go back to St. Augustine after your clan encounter and after having your home shot up and all? And I don't know whether you would call it courage or stupidity or whatever words, because many of my friends have let me know that uh, that was not a wise decision. And the thinking man and what have you would not have made some of those decisions. But uh, it may sound a little odd, but I just didn't think that St. Augustine was that hard a nut to crack. The images of peaceful protests in St. Augustine being answered with violence helped lead to passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, thanks in large part to the efforts of Dr. Robert B. Haling. Dr. Haling died on December 20th at the age of 86. He was interviewed in May by Dr. David Colburn. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org where you'll find lots of great content. Follow us on Facebook to get our daily posts today in Florida history and much more.
Information about becoming a member of the Florida Historical Society is at myfloridahistory.org. Historians glean information from many types of documents. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're looking at Sanborn fire insurance maps. Yeah, that's right. And the uh, Sanborn maps, as they're commonly referred to, were produced from the mid-19th century all the way up through the late 20th century by the Sanborn Fire Insurance Map Company. Uh, And the company was created in 1867 by Daniel Alfred Sanborn, who was originally from Massachusetts. He was a young civil surveyor who was contracted by a insurance firm to create a map for a particular area in Massachusetts. Well, Mr. Sanborn realized the potential for, uh, potential to make quite a bit of money in creating a uh, a standardized map system for large cities uh, originally throughout the northeastern part of the United States, uh, but that expanded throughout the entire country. And in fact, by the early 20th century, the Sanborn Fire Insurance Map Company had created uh, detailed surveying maps of over 12,000 cities and towns throughout the United States, including quite a few uh, right here in Florida. Uh, what's interesting about these maps is, um, as the uh, title indicates, they were created for insurance companies uh, and their own underwriters, and they are uh, very detailed surveying maps that, uh, as I mentioned before, are highly standardized. So every single map for every single city that the Sanborn Map Company created um, all used, used, utilized rather, the same uh, color coordination system, uh, indicated where uh, physical structures were uh, throughout uh, every single building in an entire town. So if you look at one of these maps today, you get a very accurate uh, idea of what a town looked like, say, in the 1870s. Uh, you can then compare that to what it looked like, say, in the 1950s. Um, so they're, they're uh, again, very uh, uh, detailed maps, but they're also uh, aesthetically pleasing as well, again, because of that uniformity. Uh, so there's a, a certain amount of, of artfulness that really went into these, uh, these surveying uh, maps. Now, uh, Sanborn, like I said, was uh, started the company in the 1860s, and uh, through the late 19th and early 20th century, with the uh, enormous growth in, in the urban population of, of most U.S. cities and towns, um, the demand for these fire insurance maps uh, uh, really increased into the 20th century. Uh, and at the height of the company's history, they employed hundreds of, of private surveyors who traveled throughout the country and created these maps, uh, but also hundreds of lithographers, cartographers, printers, uh, salesmen, uh, who were all involved in uh, creating and then marketing these maps for uh, insurance companies. And you have here some Sanborn Fire insurance maps from St. Augustine. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, what we're looking at today is a large bound volume uh, dated April 1930 for the city of St. Augustine. And this is uh, one of the only original Stanborn maps that we have in the collection. Uh, and if we open this up, you'll see that uh, each page uh, measures uh, almost two feet by two feet. I mean, they're enormous. But uh, because of the size, it enables the surveyors to include a lot of uh, really interesting details about every single structure. And what probably first uh, strikes you know most people when they see these maps is the coloration. We see these really bright hand-colored pinks and blues and yellows, and that was all indicative of the type of structure uh, that we're looking at. Uh, and each Sanborn map, at least each bound volume, came with a key. So if we look at uh, the, the key for uh, St. Augustine, we'll notice that the uh, blue maps um, or the blue structures, rather, indicate that a building is made out of some kind of stone. In fact, if it's blue with a small CBR dot, that means that it's concrete with some brick structure. Now, this is important, again, for insurance companies because they want to properly understand and accurately understand um, how to assess the liability when insuring certain structures and certain properties. And they want to know exactly what these buildings are made out of. Uh, we notice the uh, yellow buildings would be a frame building or wood frame building. Um, we also see uh, uh, small indications for windows. Uh, we know where all of the doors are. But if we look down the streets, we're actually looking at an intersection of uh, King Street and Cordova. There is a fire hydrant, and that's uh, marked here as, as an FR showing uh, exactly where, where fire extinguishers were. And again, that would affect the, uh, the, the liability standards that the insurance company would uh, assess on a certain property. Um, and again, they're looking at them today. Uh, they're aesthetically very pleasing because they were done uh, in a very standardized way. In fact, in 1905, the Sanborn Company created a manual for all of their surveyors to ensure that every single map uh, would be exactly the, the same or up to at least the same standards uh, for every town throughout, uh, throughout the United States. And these maps we're looking at are from, from 1930, and as you mentioned, there are maps from many other years, so it sounds like these could be uh, very valuable tools for researchers today. Absolutely. In fact, uh, the Sanborn and fire insurance maps are really the uh, only collection of, of maps in the United States that uh, historians, demographers can use um, to understand the evolution of a single property or a single area. So for instance, we can look at a map from, say, 1885 of the city of Jacksonville and compare that uh, to a map from 1955 of that same, uh, the same area within the city of Jacksonville. Uh, and if you look at every volume, and it depended on the size of the city uh, as to when a new volume would be published, uh, but for a larger city like Jacksonville, that was more frequent than, say, St. Augustine. But we can look at every volume, you know, in a 10-year segment and literally see the evolution of an urban area. And that's vitally important to uh, uh, our understanding of how uh, the growth of, of cities within the United States occurred in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, and it's uh, vitally important for, for historians, for genealogists as well, uh, for folks who are uh, even historic uh, preservationists and, and those involved with uh, restoration of historic buildings. You know, a lot of these buildings still exist. So how do we know, uh, you know, which, uh, where windows were placed and whether or not there was a garage attached to a structure, things like that. All of that can be found on these Sanborn uh, fire insurance maps. Now, uh, the Library of Congress probably has the largest single collection of these maps, but there are a few other firms throughout the, uh, throughout the United States that have digitized uh, these maps and actually allow users to uh, layer uh, uh, different years you know, on top of each other so you can, again, visually see how uh, a structure has, uh, has evolved and, and changed over time. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. 
Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Many visitors to Key West make a point of stopping at the Ernest Hemingway House and Museum to see the descendants of the famous writer's cats. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this report. He was just known by his family and friends and neighbors for his love of animals, cats and dogs, especially cats. That was Carlene Brennan, a writer who has spent over 30 years researching the life and work of Ernest Hemingway. Cats have become so associated with Hemingway and his life in Key West that they have become synonymous with he and his legacy in the city. Miss Brennan spoke with us about how Hemingway's early life helped to foster a lifelong love for cats. As a child, he had grown up with cats, and when he was sick, the cats were always on the bed with him and, and giving him a unconditional love. They would comfort him and, and help him in his healing of whatever his childhood illnesses were. And also when he wrote, the cats would be on his desk, on the windowsill, by his feet. They were around him constantly, so he never felt alone when he was working. He always had the company of his cats. He was content. He had their friendship. He had this wonderful atmosphere of the pets. And, and so I think his well-being and his work as a writer were affected by his love of these animals and the companionship that he received from these animals. Miss Brennan paints a picture of Hemingway's life surrounded by his cats. Here she describes some of his daily routine. He lived in Key West for nine years, and during that time period, he had adopted uh, many cats, primarily stray cats in the neighborhoods, abandoned cats, uh, even the neighborhood cats would climb his fence to visit. And during this time period, he was known for his love of cats, and he would sit in his on his veranda according to a man that worked for him for nine years, and he would read to his cat, and the cats would be sitting around him close to his feet, and he would keep a diary of the cat's birth and death and illnesses and so forth. Hemingway lived all around the world, yet it is only his time in Key West and the Hemingway Home and Museum in Key West that is so closely associated with cats. Miss Brennan explains to us why that is. People focused primarily on the Key West cats, and they were very fascinated by them because they had the polydectal cats with these extra toes, and the fact that these cats are descendants of Hemingway's original cats and, and, and the caretakers of the Hemingway house do such a marvelous job taking care of the cats that it's just become a, a lovely sanctuary. Cat lovers from, you know, all, all over the world come here to visit the cats as well as to visit the Hemingway house. Miss Brennan tells us that being one of Hemingway's favorite cats entitled you to not only special privileges and affections from a doting owner, but also immortality in the pages of American literature. He had one cat, boys. He was his best 
cat friend. He had him 14 years. He called him brother. The cat followed him everywhere. The cat slept on his chest every night, and he was there when Hemingway wrote. He had a special place at the dining table and his own wine glass to drink water out of. He would go for long walks with Hemingway. The boys died of a heart attack in, in 1956, and Hemingway was absolutely devastated. He immortalized him in his book, Islands in the Stream, that was published after his death, and he just poured out his heart and his feelings about boys in this book. That was Carlene Brennan, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.